Hopefully you're there in Exodus 22. You can keep a marker there and let's turn to Genesis 15. want to give us sort of a diving board before we dive into the chapter. We'll look at a couple different scriptures. Let's read there Genesis 15 verse 13 through 21. We'll read through it real quick. It's a conversation between God and Abram. It says, And he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt, to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Again, God did not just decide on a whim to clear out all the people of the promised land for no reason. It shows us there in verse 16 that at a certain point, the iniquity of the Amorites would be such that God would have to judge these people. I don't know how often you use that word iniquity, if you used it this week, right? But that word iniquity, it means perversity, depravity, or complete injustice or wickedness. Perversity, depravity, complete injustice or wickedness. And the Ten Commandments that God gives us, gives the nation of Israel... The interpretation of the Ten Commandments, we may read it and say, this is weird, right? Where is God pulling these rules from? Is God just bored and he's making random rules for no reason? Many of the rules, the regulations, the law that God is giving the nation of Israel, it's practices that's happening right around them. It's the MO, the motive operandum of the culture and the world around them. And God is saying, I'm going to have to judge them because they're living this way. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the promised land. But now if you begin to live like them, I'd be a hypocrite, right? If I'm going to punish these people for living a certain way, I'm going to call you my chosen people. But now you live just like them. I'm going to have to punish you as well. And that's basically what the Ten Commandments comes down to. What the interpretation of the Ten Commandments comes down to. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 18. A couple pages past Exodus. And there in Leviticus chapter 18. Similar time period there. Just written from a different angle. But there in Leviticus chapter 18. We see the Lord warning the nation of Israel. To not act like the surrounding culture, the surrounding nations, or the world around them. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 24. We'll read verse 24 through 30. It tells the nation of Israel. He tells us as well. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these the nations are defiled which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled." Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore you shall keep my ordinance, so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am... The Lord your God. God is warning them, hey, you have to live by a certain set of morals, which is different from the world around you. 
I'm judging the world. That's why I'm bringing you into this very special promised land. However, if you start living like them, I'm going to have to judge you as well. Let's finally turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And then after that, we'll dive into Exodus 22. And here is the scripture for us as believers. Again, it's changed our mode of operandum. It's not killing all the unbelievers. It's not clearing out the land. You can uh, destroy your neighbor's house and take it over just because they're sinners or sinful, right? We're supposed to do a spiritual work, praying for them, see them regenerated, see them come to the Lord. However, we are still to live different. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it tells us, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Family, we have to be different. We have to look different. Our morals have to be different. Our decisions have to be different. Our families need to look different than the rest of this world. We mentioned it on Wednesday. How can we share the gospel of a God that wants to transform someone's life when we're struggling with the same sins for years and years and years. It's a bit hypocritical, right? You're telling someone, hey, God wants to radically change and transform your life, but yet my life hasn't been transformed for the last 10 years. I'm living the exact same way, right? Every new year, people begin with their New Year's resolutions about being healthy, right? Some of us are doing okay. Some of us, we started new, new Year's resolutions afterwards, right? But imagine having someone come to you. They're like a good 300 pounds overweight, and they're like, man, I have the key to fitness, right? I promise you, if you do these things, it's going to be miraculous in your life. You're going to say, man, get out of here, right? I love you, but if, if you followed it, maybe then I would, I would trust you that it's miraculous, right? And yet if we are calling ourselves Christians and believers, we can't try to share the gospel with someone if our life has not been transformed. If our life is not continually being transformed by the renewing of our mind. If we're allowing ourselves to be pressed into the mold of this world, like Romans 12 warns us about, the power of the gospel in our lives, we are dumbing it down. And now we're dumbing down the power that we have to share the gospel with other people. Let's go to Exodus 22. So God, he's given them the Ten Commandments. He's begun to give them the interpretation of the Ten Commandments. And he continues through this. Unfortunately, we don't get the, that crazy oxen that becomes jaws killing people. So a lot of people like that last week. A little weird, but hey, we keep going. Exodus 22, we'll read verse 1 through 4. It says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies... There shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. So one of the marks of the people of God here that we see in verses 1 through 4 is that God's people are to be marked with responsibility and restitution. As God's people, we should be people of responsibility and people of restitution, right? A big problem in our world today is that people make decisions and yet it's never their own fault. I do something, I made a bad choice, and it's because of my parents. I do something, I made a choice, it's because of my upbringing, it's because of the world, it's because of how I was feeling, it's because of the time of the month, it's always someone else's fault. But God warned the children of Israel that they were to be a people of responsibility. That word is being the one who must answer or account for something. And again, as believers, we must answer and give an account for our decisions, our mistakes, and our lives. That other word, restitution, it's giving of something back 
to its rightful owner or the giving of something of equal value as for the loss or for the damage. Giving back. Again, we live in Miami, right? Sad to say, sometimes people get into accidents. Person has no insurance. It's not even their car. They're not even from here. They total your car. And what do you get left with? Nothing. You just get left with, and I'm sorry, right? There's no restitution. There's no giving back equal value for the loss or damage that you've just tasted of. And again, these first four verses, they all come from Exodus 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. So if you steal one ox, you sell it or kill it, you got to repay with five oxen. You steal a sheep, you sell it or kill it, you need to pay back with four sheep. Here God also continues the same theme that the judgment needs to fit the crime. We talked about we're not very good with our own justice, right? Someone cuts you off and you want to like cut them off and make them hit the brakes, right? Someone hits you, you want to hit them back and break their nose. Then they want to break your teeth, right? It's just a bad progression that ensues. So for the Israelites, if someone broke into their house at night, and it's night, and he hits them and he kills them, there's no guilt. But if you can see what's going on and you still kill him, again, then there's guilt. And they're going to judge to see what's going on. Again, if someone breaks into your home and they're trying to run away, don't empty out your magazine or clip saying, my life was threatened, right? They find all the bullets in the back of the poor guy's back, right? That doesn't work. Your justice does not fit the crime that has happened. The true penalty after the judge would see what's going on would be that either they have to make up for the loss by paying back double what they stole, or if the thief could not afford it, they would work in slavery until they could pay it off, or until, like we studied last week, six years of slavery have passed. Again, when we do evil, we should have to pay back for it. You've heard it been said, cleanliness is next to godliness, right? Here, these next few verses, I believe God is telling us carelessness should be nowhere near godliness. Carelessness should be nowhere near godliness. G. Campbell Morgan, he tells us these laws also began by laying emphasis on the guilt of being careless. The truth emphasized is that no man must live his life on a basis of selfishness or wholly alone, and that wrong inflicted on neighbor by neighbor in the material realm becomes sin against God in the moral realm. Sometimes we believe just because we made a mistake, just because we were careless, I shouldn't have to pay anything, right? I did nothing wrong. It wasn't premeditated. I didn't do it on purpose. But God's word tells us otherwise. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and he lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make, there's that word again, restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If your animal's a little bit hungry and starts eating from someone else's field, you have to pay them back. You don't just say it's so cute or ay que lindo. No, you have to pay them back. And then God knows. God knows us so well, right? You got to pay them back. Not from, oh, look, we, I got some food here that's rotting out. There's the cat food that's like a couple years old. Yeah, let's just pay them back with that. He goes, no, you have to pay back with the very best of your field. Just because it was a mistake does not mean that there are no consequences. Again, the people of God, we are to be responsible for our own actions, even if it was a mistake. Sometimes we think just because it's a mistake, everybody's going to let me off the hook, but that's not the case. F.B. Meyer, he says, we wrong another not only by what we do or permit to be done, but in what we carelessly fail to do. Just because we forgot, you're still guilty of it. Sorry, boss, I forgot to come to work again, right? I forgot to set my alarm again. I forgot to do this. Doesn't matter. It is still our mistake. We need to take responsibility and ownership of our mistakes and of our decisions. Again, as believers, our life should not be defined on what we don't do, but our life should be defined on what we do. 
this is who I am because of these things. Not just, hey, I am who I am because I don't do X, Y, or Z. That can lead to a form of religion where we look down on other people. Because, hey, I'm more holy because I don't do those certain things. That's dangerous. Verse 6, if a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain and standing grain or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If you're out there playing with fire or having a Roman candle fight, right, and all of a sudden a field gets lit, if you're having a crazy gender reveal party and your uh, explosion gets out of control and a fire breaks out, you have to pay for it. I don't know if you guys follow the news on all these crazy gender reveals, right? Sadly, there's a guy, I think, in upstate New York who killed himself trying to do the gender reveal party, right? It's plain and simple. Just tell the people it's a boy or a girl, right? No need for explosions, no need for fire, no need for dynamite. But again, if you create a fire, if your animal does something, you have to pay for the damage you've caused. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it is stolen out of the man's house. If the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. Again, if someone trusts you to take care of something and it's stolen, you're responsible for it. If they find the thief, the thief pays double. If not, the judges will check out to see if you told a friend of a friend of a friend, right? I know I'm not the only one here, but sometimes things go missing because of a friend of a friend of a friend. Tell someone, hey, this person's out of town for the next week. Wink, 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 right? Then they tell people things like that. This person's not going to be around. I'm taking care of this thing. I'm not going to be around. If it goes missing, well, who knows, right? The other thing for us to know is that if someone lends us anything, we should bring it back in exactly the same or better condition. Someone lends you something, bring it back in the same or better condition. Someone lends you their truck to go moving, hey, fill up the gas tank, wash the car. Someone lends you a tool, buy them a new bit, buy them a new blade. That should be our testimony as believers. Again, we're going through 1 Peter chapter 2, and he tells us, hey, unbelievers, they're going to call us crazy. They're going to call us terrible for our view on sin, for our view on morals, our view of marriage, of one man, one woman, of God made them, male and female, our view that pornography is wrong, that art, just because people are naked doesn't mean that it's okay to be art. All of those things people are going to judge us for. But our actions and our conduct should put us at a place where people respect us because of our character. So again, people should want to lend you things. And I, wa I want to lend this to so-and-so. It always comes back in better condition, right? I want to lend my car to so-and-so. I don't have that much money for gas. So I want them to borrow the car, right? Now don't run always on empty so you can lend people the car, right? But again, that should be our heart. I'm not... Too big into books, but I know people that lend books out, right? Sometimes you get a book back, and you're like, where was this guy reading this book? Like, underwater? Were they reading this underwater, right? And you get that thing back, and now you've realized, I am never lending anything to this person ever again. Again, when someone entrusts something to our care, we are responsible for it. We should take care of it. Verse 9 for any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox or a donkey, a sheep or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judge, and whomever the judge condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Again, many of us, our first morals we learned on the playground, right? You learn sticks and stones may break my bones, but words... Never going to hurt me, right? What's sort of the second playground commandment? Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? Not the case here for the children of Israel. God told them that was not okay. God loves me so much, he just brought this thing right into my care. This $20 bill fell from this person's wallet into my hand, and God is providing for me, right? It wouldn't work that way. If something is lost and someone says, hey, that's mine, it has the serial number that I bought it with, right? 
and they want to fight, you would take it to the judge. And now whomever the judge is saying, this does not belong to you, now they would have to pay twice the amount of the thing that they found or the thing they've really stolen, what belongs to his neighbor. Verse 10 through 13, it tells us, If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, it's hurt, or it's driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both. And he has not put his hand to his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. But if in fact it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it's torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good on what was torn. Here we begin to see the beginnings of the idea of innocent until proven guilty. And all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the first five books, there's a common theme of having to have witnesses present. It can't just be one person's word against someone else. You have to have two or three witnesses. Here he's saying if there are no witnesses and there's contrary beliefs to what happened, then the person just has to make an oath between them and God and they have to trust that fact. Again, in this day and age, a man's word and a vow to God were seen as enough. And I believe the same should be true of believers, of us. We shouldn't have to swear on anyone's grave. We shouldn't have to swear to God, swear on our mom, swear on whatever you think makes your word that much more worthy. Our yes should be yes, and our no should be no. That should be enough. We got to give to Caesar what is Caesar. So when you got to fill out a contract, man, you fill out that contract. But our word should be enough. And then again in verse 12, we see that same word, restitution. Right? It's difficult in our day and age. You can have something stolen from you, and it just disappears. The thief, they go to prison. That's rough. That's hard. But they get air conditioning. They get a library. They get to work out. They get all sorts of things. Is there truly restitution happening in our world today? Continue to pray for the pastors, the police officers here, part of the, the body. And there's sometimes difficult situations where bad guys do certain things. They take their own lives and just it drops the morale of the officers because there's no restitution. There's no justice. Something evil happened and they couldn't even catch the guy. They couldn't even make things somewhat right. And within our world that leaves a big void and a big danger. Again, a big part of the problem we see today. Verse 14, back to borrowing things. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. And if it was hired, it came for his hire. Again, that same principle. Bring things back in the same or better condition when someone lends it to you. You borrowed a tool from someone. It dies out on you, gotta just buy them a new one. Should have figured that out before you borrowed it from them. Uh, my parents always gave me the wisdom if you can't afford to replace it, don't borrow it from someone else. The other thing that God is showing here is that sometimes bad things happen and there's no one to blame for it, right? Bad things happen and we're quick to blame someone, usually not ourselves, right? We want to blame someone else for it. But sometimes bad things happen. And if you're working together on a project and the animal dies, the drill dies out, hey, there's nothing to do. And now if the owner rents it out to you, that owner needs to consider that in the price of him renting it out to you. If they paid for it, hey, that's a part of it. Next, he's going to dive into moral and ceremonial principles. And again, a big problem in our nation is that our morals have gone down the tubes. And it starts off with small things, right? Really, if you look back in our nation's history, in the roaring 20s, it sort of brought in this idea of promiscuity and it being okay, right? We're talking about 1920. You look at the promiscuity in 1920, and then you look at it today, and you go, what in the world are you even talking about, right? But when we get away from God's alignment, when we get away from God's rules just by a little bit, it will tailspin. 
out of control, right? We got the 20s, then it goes to the 60s, what's going on, the 70s, the 2000s, and look where we are at today. Verse 16 and 17, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride's price of virgins. Again, sex comes with a price. There's no pleasure without responsibility. Sex comes with a price. There's no pleasure without responsibility. If you have sex with a woman, she's not married, you better be prepared to marry her right away with the consent of the father. You got to be ready to pay that dowry. Be ready to pay that bride price. The auction, the sheep, right? The coats, all the money, all the food. You have to be ready to marry any woman that you look to sleep with. Again, what a foreign concept for our world today. Where sex is just seen as pleasure, right? It was just a fling. We were just bored. We just got drunk. They seem like a nice person. I'm putting another notch on my belt for the amount of people I've slept with, right? That is our world today. And we've gotten there because we've watered down the morals. The power was still there for the father. Because if the father refused to allow the guy to marry his wife, if he says, this guy's a deadbeat, he's not going to be good for my wife, then he would still have to pay the price because it would be that much more difficult for that girl to ever get married again. How do we apply this to our lives today, right? Maybe some of the dads you're writing, eh, except dowry and bride price, right? For my daughter, right? Maybe that's what some of the guys are thinking. Parents, singles here, take on more responsibility and think about getting married at a younger and younger age. Again, our world today, we've thought that putting responsibility on kids is something that's like evil, Right? We say, hey, I want you to be in school. I want you to do good in school. So I'm going to take all the responsibility away from you. Just give me A's. And that's good. And parents, we do that with the right heart. But the problem is that we're dumbing them down to all the responsibility that's required of being an adult. Right? Dads, moms here, is your only responsibility to do well at work? If you don't do good at work, you don't get A's at work, you get fired. But you're also responsible to do good in paying your bills on time. You're responsible to pour into your marriage. You got to be responsible to taking care of your car. Got to be responsible for feeding the kids. Got to be responsible for spending time with the kids. Got to be responsible for so many different things. Being consistent at church. Being responsible in our time alone with God. And when we water down all the responsibilities that we as adults have to take on, and we take that all away from our kids, we're setting them up for failure. And again, if... You adults here, many of you married people here, were able to get married at 18 and in your early 20s. Why can't that happen today? Because we've zapped the youth of responsibility. We've taken that away from them. Entrust responsibility to our kids. Young people here, stop running away from responsibility. That is the path that leads to pride. That is a path that leads to depression. That is a path that will lead to yourself being completely alone with no one around you. That is a path that's seen in Scripture, that people, they don't want to take on responsibility because they just want to love themselves and take care of themselves. And it leads to a lonely place in life. We should encourage our sons and daughters to take on more responsibility, to first and foremost be responsible with their relationship with God, to be responsible as a leader in the kids' ministry or a leader in the young adults or a leader within the youth group, right? We should encourage taking on more responsibility as we're faithful in the little and given to the much. The other idea here is to get married at a young age. And again, God, he, has, he gives us examples, right? We have Samuel who was used by God, little tiny kid. He's given a little priest ephod at like six years old, right? You have Abraham, 80 years old when God begins to use him. So man, if you're here and you're young, get right with God. Take on that responsibility. Get married when God allows it. If you're here and you're older, man, you get married when God allows you to, right? We have people here that got married when they're 18, Married when they're 48, hey, let's break some records this year, right? 58, 68, 78, 88, let's see what we can do, right? Finally, 
Pornography is rotting away our culture. And it's making our young men and women more and more irresponsible instead of being responsible. Again, before you could take a girl out on a date, you had to win over the parents. You had to be somewhat respectable. You had to have some sort of responsibility. But now because of our world today, you can get all the pleasure or half the pleasure of sex being on your couch and bed doing nothing for your whole life. And it's leading to more and more irresponsibility than being more and more responsible. Again, within the life of the believer, we have to stop making excuses for pornography. We say it's running rampant in our culture. It's okay. There's marriages where they try to bring that into the marriage bed, and they say that's okay. This is a heinous and disgusting sin that we should treat it as the disgusting sin that it is. Some people say it's art. Some people say it's okay. It happens at the barbershop. It happens in the middle school. happens in the locker room. We need to rid ourselves from this because it's rotting away at our culture. It's rotting away at our morals. And now something that God took as holy and pure and special, we're making it like it's out there for anyone and everyone. And again, all sin, when it's fully born, gives birth to death. So again, for the men here and the ladies here, if you're struggling with pornography, got to kill that thing. Put it to death. Ken Graves, he shared with the men a couple weeks ago, and he warned the men, either you put yourself to death or you're going to kill all the people you love. Either you put your own flesh, your own desires to death, or you're going to kill all the people around you. And again, the young men here, the teenagers, the young adults, our world makes this and glorifies it. Movies all about this, right? But it will take away your life. Again, I encourage the single people, fight for your marriage now. Fight for your families now. Don't wait till later on to begin tackling this beast. We should put on more responsibility and we should take on the morals that God has given us. That's what we should take on. And a big problem in our culture, in our nation, is between 1962 to 1970, there were three huge things that got passed through the government, right? We took prayer out of school. We began teaching evolution. And California in 1970 was the first state to put in no-fault divorce into law. And since then, our morals, our culture, and our nation is falling into a tailspin. Because we've taken out the importance of spending time with God. We've taken out the importance in realizing that God is the one that has created everything. So that gives him the right to tell us what morals are, what's right and what's wrong. And finally, the only thing that we take out of the Garden of Eden is marriage. It's holy, it's important, it's special to God. And now people can come and go as they please. They can get married and divorce without any rhyme or any reason. And that's spilled over to the place that we're at today. Again, family, sexual sin... God's word warns us it's the only sin that damages our very own body, our very own soul. We go to verse 18, and here we get three crimes that deserve capital punishment. Verse 18 through 20, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall utterly be destroyed again talking about sex talking about these strings like man god this is a bit excessive right you're gonna put someone to death just because they mess with a ouija board right just because they watched bewitch or something like that you're gonna put them to death first corinthians chapter 5 verse 6 through 7 it really gives us the foundation and the reality of what sin does in our lives in a family in a culture and in a nation 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, Paul, he tells us here, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Paul's warning us here that any allowance of sin will grow and grow and grow. When we just allow a small ounce of sin into our lives, sometimes we think, ah, it's just a small thing. 
Oftentimes as parents, we see our kids doing small things and we say, it's not that bad. They're really a good kid. And it's dangerous for us because God's word warns us it never just stays a little thing. It's going to grow. It's going to multiply. And now it's going to affect all the dough that's in that bowl. Again, I don't know how many bakers are here, but you only need a tiny little bit of leaven to get all that flour to rise, right? I've heard a lot of pastors say this analogy. I wonder how many of them have actually done it, right? I was listening to Sandy Adams, and he said his kids were asking, hey, can we watch this movie? It's rated R. There's only one sex scene. There's only a couple bad words. It's not that bad. And he tells them, no, you can't watch it. can't watch that. So later on, he heard them actually watching it. So he said he went to the kitchen. He made some brownies, put the fudge on top, the caramel on top, right? Got them all ready. And he just brought them out to the kids, right? Dad, you made brownies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were all excited. I just put a little bit of poop in it, right? I just put a tiny bit of dog poop. I mixed it in the batter. I let the mixer do its thing. It's just a tiny bit, right? There's no blowing the germs off of that one, right? And none of them wanted it. None of them wanted to eat it. And again, family, when we look at things in our lives and we make excuses saying, it's just a small sin. It's just a small problem. It's going gonna, it's gonna to kill us. That lust, when it becomes sin, and that sin, when it gets fully born, brings forth death. Take care of it at the root. That's why God told them, you will not permit a sorceress to live. Again, God wants us to live a life that leads to fellowship with him. And now if we're living a fellowship, we're living a life that leads to fellowship with darkness and demons and the occult, that life leads to death. Again, if you're with us on Wednesdays, you know that whenever God's word speaks of a sorceress, it's talking about two things, witchcraft. It's talking about the occult, darkness, santeria, all that sorts of things. But it's also talking about drug and alcohol use. If we're taking things to put ourselves in another dimension, taking things to cut the hardness off of things, if we're taking things to dumb down our senses because things are just too difficult right now, you're opening up yourself to the darkness from the occult, dark, dark place to be. Verse 19, again, it reveals to us how morals, once we take the foundation of sex is only for the one husband and the one wife that marry each other, it goes out of control. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Once we open the doors of morality to mean, hey, whatever feels good, do it. Whatever feels good to you, do it. The brakes are off. The tailspin will ensue, and then there's nowhere to stop, right? We see where sex is at today. Sooner or later, it'll lead to pedophilia being okay, and sooner or later, it will lead to bestiality being completely fine within our world. Even, I believe it was like five or six years ago, a whole story in the news about a uh, a group or a club in England that would put on dog costumes and then do weird things to each other. Again, our world accepts this today. We need to hold down the line to the first things that God commands. Verse 20, he who sacrifices to any God except the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Again, God didn't want any of this to start with one person and then permeate into the whole entire family and flock of Israel. Yet we all know, or maybe you're a student of the Bible, what happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament? They're sacrificing to idols. They're putting their own kids on the altar. There's kings of Israel who are going out there and sacrificing to these gods. What would have happened if the nation of Israel would have been obedient to God's word? You can think of Elijah killing all the priests of Baal after the fire rains down from heaven. In verse 21 through 24, God reveals to us his heart and his character for those who are oppressed, for the orphan, the widow, for the underdogs, what I wrote, right? Verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. 
Again, God encourages them, hey, remember where you came from. Remember who you once were. Don't mistreat or oppress the stranger. The person that comes to you that they don't have their own land, they don't have their own country, don't you dare mistreat them or oppress them or take advantage of them. Do you not remember who you were in Egypt and what the Egyptians did to you? And family, for us as a church, as believers, we need to remember who we once were. We need to remember where God has taken us from. Sometimes new people come to church and they look a little bit different and we judge them hardcore because we don't remember who we once were. Sometimes people at church, they do things to us and we hit them with all the law because we have forgotten the amount of grace, mercy, and love that God has poured out on us. Verse 22 through 24, God warns them, hey, I will protect the fatherless and the widow. And our God, all throughout Scripture, before any other group, before any other religion, cared about widows and the fatherless, our God cared about them. That's why, as believers, we should be caring about the widows. We should be caring about the fatherless. We should be caring about those that can't really protect themselves or care for themselves. You can write down James chapter 1, verse 27. James tells us, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Right? Basically, if you have to sum up all of Exodus 22, that's one great verse to do it. Care for the orphan and the widow and keep yourself unspotted from this world. That's why we have to be so careful, family. Have to be so careful, especially today, especially in our culture, that we are not clinging to the world's answers for injustice. That we're not clinging to the world's fix for the social problems in our world. The fix for all of these problems is to come to the end of our sins and jump into a relationship and friendship with God. Where we're obedient to his word. Again, God himself says, I'm going to care for them. And if you dare hurt them, I will come. I'm going to kill you. Your wife's going to become a widow. And your own kids are going to become an orphan. Have to be so careful parading around the world's ideas for social justice. Got to be careful with that. We need to be biblically based. The problem in our world today, it's sin. The problem in the worlds around Israel during this day, it was sin. We got to be careful. We're not clinging to critical race theory where there's no room for forgiveness. There's no room for restoration. There's no room for restitution. And as believers, Christ calls us to forgive one another. Got to be careful that we're clinging to that when that's just poison for us, for our nation. God has the answer. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Nation of Israel, they weren't supposed to become loan sharks, right? They weren't supposed to be giving out loans that were so hard that the people could never pay back. He told them, if you're going to lend money to another Israelite, you're going to lend money to another person within the family, don't you dare charge them interest, right? Isn't that what happened with the last economic disaster? They're just giving loans to everyone, anyone. Problem with many people today with student loans, right? Hey, we're going to give you $300,000 in student loans. You're going to get a $30,000 a year job. Got to pay me back later, right? It doesn't work. Got to be careful with these things. Then he tells us even if they're not given interest, if this poor person puts their cloak down as basically a payment, you have to give it back to them at night. Got to take care of them. He says that's the only thing they have. That's their home. That's their shelter. That's their sweater. You have to give it back to them. And then the promise, if we are those that are the orphan, the widow, the forsaken, God is encouraging you to cry out to him. If you cry out to him, he's going to hear you. If you take things into your own strength and your own matters, it's only going to get worse and worse. Verse 28, 
You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Again, God not only judges our actions, but he judges our words. Got to be careful how we talk about our president. Got to be careful how we talk about the people that are rulers and authorities. Got to be careful how we talk about God. We are to pray for our leaders. Right? You look at Daniel. I'm always blown away at Daniel uh, with the king who throws him in the lion's den. King Darius runs, and I guess Daniel hears him, right? He says, Daniel, are you alive? Was your God able to save you? And he doesn't say, man, you dummy. Yeah, I survived, right? He says, long live the king. Darius, I'm here. I'm okay. I'm fine, right? Again, these men were put in authority, and they never talked bad or garbage about this authority. We got to pray for them. Got to pray for them a whole lot. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. Family, don't hold back on giving God your best. Don't hold back on giving God your best. We can never outgive him. There's never going to be a day or a point where we say, you owe me. We're not going to get to heaven and say, better pay up. You owe me for all those years of being in kids' ministry, all those dirty diapers, God. You owe me now, right? Never going to be the case. May we give God our best, right? Sometimes we struggle with the tithe, man, 10%. I encourage you, do that right at the beginning when you get your paycheck. Don't wait till the end when you're having to decide what you're going to do. Do it at the beginning. Give God your best. And do it quickly. John Trappy says, true obedience is prompt and present, ready and speedy. That's how our obedience should be. Right, parents, do we love it? Yeah, my kid's obedient. I ask them to do something. It takes about a month that they do it. Yeah, my kids are so obedient, right? No, when they do it quickly, when they're quick to obey, that's, again, when our hearts are so blessed. Finally, verse 31, and you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Again, a great warning to us. Don't be driving on the highway and say, ah, fresh meat, right? There's no roadkill cafes allowed in uh, Israel here at this time. Again, I don't know if that really speaks to you, but if it does, we'll be praying for you. The true thing here for us and for the nation of Israel, it's found at the beginning of verse 31. You shall be holy men to me. We are to be separate. We are to live lives separate from this world. And again, it's not that we are separated from the world. It's that we are separated unto God. I belong to God. I spend time with him, right? That's the lives that we are supposed to live. Was Jesus holy? Yes. Jesus is super holy, right? <laughs> Don't worry. The 9 o'clock, they looked at me too. Right? Jesus. Jesus is as holy as it comes, right? And yet, he sat down to eat with sinners. He sat down with the worst of the worst. With the people that the religious people say, man, how dare you even eat with them? You've become unclean because you've eaten with them. But the difference with Christ is he was separated unto God. So even though he'd spend time with what we would deem as the riffraff or the bottom of the barrel or the morally decayed, he would bring God to them. The whole conversation would change. People would get saved. Pharisees would get saved. Unbelievers would get saved, right? And that's what we should be doing. At our jobs, we have some parasites, right? At our jobs, there may be some Amorites, right? And what we're called to do, it's not like the Old Testament. Yeah, I kill them, right? Because they don't believe in God. No, we are to win them over. We're to be like what 1 Peter tells us to be, that even though they may mock us or hate us because we abide with God's word and we defend God's word, they will love us because of our character, because of who we are, because of the love we have for them, even though they don't believe it. Again, every command that God gave them, it wasn't just because I said so, it was because God cared for them. Adam Clark, he says, no command was issued merely from the sovereignty of God. He gave them to his people as restraints on disorderly passions and incentives to holiness. Same is true today. The word of God that he gives us, the things that he says, hey, stay away from that, it's because it's going to grow into a disorderly passion. 
It's going to destroy you, your life, your family. And now as we're holy, as he is holy, it's going to lead to more blessings from God. Let's go to 1 Peter 1 and then we'll reread 1 Peter chapter 2. But 1 Peter chapter 1, again, we are given a New Testament commandment for the way we are to live, for who we are to be today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all, in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And again, Peter here, he mentions it in verse 14. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. You know better. That's what Peter's saying. You know better than to go back to that well. You know better than to live like this world. You are to be set apart as God is set apart from this entire universe. Again, there's only one creator. There's creator and creation. And because of that, God is completely separate from everything else. We are to be separated with him. We are to be set apart with him. We're not to look like this world or look like this culture. We're not to be accepted by them. We are to be accepted with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's own special people. That we would proclaim the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Family, have you tasted of the mercy of God? Have you tasted what it's like to be pulled out of darkness and be brought to his marvelous light? If you're trying to contemplate whether the world is right or whether the world is wrong, I challenge you, you have not tasted the truth of being pulled out of that darkness into his marvelous light. You have not truly tasted the mercy of God that we don't deserve. Again, I encourage you this morning, pray, ask God, God, have I really obtained that mercy? Have I tasted of that mercy? Lord, have I tasted the sweetness of being pulled out of darkness into your marvelous light? Again, God's word, its definition of death is not necessarily what we think of. The definition of death is being separated from something. So us being dead to our sins means that we should be separate from sin. Death for us as the believer is to be separated from the body and in the presence of God. And now eternal death is being separated from God for all of eternity. And that is darkness. That is hell for all of eternity. So again, for us, may we taste the goodness and the sweetness of being able to be with God. Of being able to spend time with Him. Of being able to raise a family according to Him and His word. I pray that we will taste of that goodness.